Design is not something separate. It's not the aesthetic skin um, uh, or the radius or the fonts or the color. It's the entire experience of using a product. Let us say we have the technology or it is close to maturing, then how do we translate that technology into um, a compelling human experience? And that's where design comes in. This is Supply Change, and I'm Ron Volpe. Design thinking, the philosophy behind it can best be summed up by Steve Jobs' quote, Design is not the way it looks, design is the way it works. And its popularity rose hand in hand with the rise of Apple. But its founding is much more than Steve Jobs and much more than just a methodology to make sleek designs for new technology. I met with Barry Cates, professor, IDEO fellow, author, and preeminent design thinking scholar to discuss the rich history of design thinking and how it's influenced the ways companies use design to solve problems and design products with their users in mind. We started out by discussing Barry's decades-spanning career and what design thinking really means. I'm here with Barry Cates. Um, Barry and I have known each other for a number of years um, through um, work we did together uh, at IDEO and when I was at Kraft. So Barry, welcome to Supply Chain. Good morning, Ron. It's always nice to see you. And Barry, is the, uh, he's a professor at the California College of the Arts. Yes. Uh, he is an IDEO fellow. Yes. Um, he, and he is also the author of a number of books, the most recent of which was, uh, make it new, which is about design thinking in Silicon, the history of design thinking in Silicon Valley. More or less correct. All right. All right. <laughs> so welcome. So when you fill in the blanks for uh, what that I left out about your illustrious career. Uh, okay. So I'll tell you about the illustrious career and then we can go on to the less than illustrious parts. Uh, the bit you left out also been a professor in the engineering school at Stanford, um, for decades, uh, we have a group there called the Design Group, which is positioned uh, sort of at the uh, uh, on the edge of uh, the mechanical engineering department. Okay. Um, uh, yes, you are correct. I have uh, three professional affiliations at Stanford, where I am dealing mainly with engineering students and trying to persuade them to take art and culture more seriously. And then up to my art school, California College of the Arts, where I am trying to tr persuade art students to take science and engineering more seriously. And in between, I have worked for many years as an external fellow at IDEO, which is uh, widely regarded as the founding consultancy of uh, Silicon Valley. And I've made the argument in the book that you mentioned, The History of Silicon Valley Design, and a number of other publications not that Silicon Valley would not have happened without the design industry, but it definitely would not have happened in the way that it did. And I more or less define design as the process of moving technology into the market. So um, when I read your book, there are a number of things that, uh, that, that um, were new news to me or surprised me. So um, one thing that didn't, but I think that um, I, you know, I, I'd call out and just ask you a question about it, is a lot of times we think of a design of thinking in Silicon Valley as um, being about Apple and Steve Jobs and it started and ended there. But what I learned in the book was it goes way back and there's a whole bunch that's happened since. Um, so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about um, 
how that evolved in Silicon Valley and maybe why Silicon Valley? Sure. Uh, well, you say you learned a lot from reading it. I learned even more writing it. So when I started the book, uh, I was provoked by uh, the fact that there are probably more design professionals within 50 miles of where you and I are sitting right now than anywhere else in the world. And uh, that would be remarkable in itself. But if you contrast that to, um, uh, say, the early years of Apple, um, uh, we were really not on the map. One of my friends gave me a page out of the Palo Alto telephone book from 1979. So younger listeners, I should probably explain that a telephone book is this thing where you looked up. Never mind. Um, the uh, yellow pages listed every design consultancy in Northern California. There were nine of them and they were squeezed in between detective agencies and diaper services. And today we have the largest concentration of designers in the world. All the major consultancies are based here and world famous corporate design groups, most famously Apple. So I became interested in how that happened uh, and happened so abruptly. I think if you had asked almost anybody around 1979-80, what are the major design centers of the world? The answers would have been pretty clear. Milan for furniture, Paris for fashion, London for product design, New York for graphics, Los Angeles for whatever they do down there, um, Tokyo for electronics. And if you had said, and the San Francisco Bay Area, silence. It, we were not on the map and now we are at the center. So I wanted to find out how that happened. And it seemed pretty obvious to me at the time that Apple and Steve Jobs' passion for good design was the real driver. But what I discovered is that when I started to scratch, I found that there was actually some activity before that in the 70s. And I scratched a little bit further and found some things in the 60s. And I kept scratching until I got back to, I think it was August 4th, 1951 which is the date in which Hewlett Packard hired the first professionally trained designer to work in what is now Silicon Valley. So uh, end of um, uh, the, the point there being uh, Apple was not the beginning of uh, the rise of design in this region. It came at exactly the midpoint and was kind of like a fulcrum uh, that pivoted everything. So this does not take anything away from the accomplishment of Steve Jobs, quite to the contrary, uh, but he was building upon a foundation that had already been laid. One of the things I, I also learned in your book was, um, you know, when I, when I think people think of Apple, when I think of Apple, I think of sleek design and iPhones. And, yeah. and the reality is, as I read the book, um, he was really about everything to do with the product, the marketing, the presentation, the retail. So... I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that and yeah. and how that has influenced uh, others in Silicon Valley. Well, he said to me once, and uh, I, I flattered myself that he, he had never said this to anybody else, but that I saw it quoted everywhere. Uh, he said, um, uh, in response to a question I put to him along those lines, what explains you know the the beauty and the precision of Apple's products? Uh, and his answer was, design is not the way it looks, design is the way it works. And he wanted to move us away from thinking that um, you can take technology and put it in an attractive box and call it design. Uh, and toward uh, a more comprehensive 
idea that um, design is not something separate. It's not the aesthetic skin um, uh, or the radius or the fonts or the color. It's the entire experience of using a product and it's delivering that experience. So when um, uh, Jobs and Apple and subsequent generations of designers in the region really began to work around that idea, uh, we began to see uh, a real shift in thinking. And the latest version of that is what everybody is now calling design thinking, which has almost nothing to do with the appearance of products and everything to do with a strategy for creating innovative experiences. Yeah, when, when we first engaged with IDEO back in, uh, well, the year 2005, 2004, um, the, uh, I think the, the team was you called... Were just, you were just a kid. I was just, we were both just kids. I think the team was called uh, um, Transformation by Design. And I think what surprised me at that time, and it surprised a lot, at least at Kraft at the time, was that um, the notion of using design thinking to develop processes, and in our case, supply chain processes, was... was um, um, was something that had been thought through and, and was relevant. So um, was, was that a big leap as you started to engage with companies when you were at IDEO? Or you know, was, that, was that a first for you? Or has that gone back further than just you know, my short recollection? Uh, I would, I'm always wary of talking about anything as a first because you can always find some guy's cousin did it the week before. So with that qualification, I think IDEO was a real pioneer in um, exploring the margins, exploring the perimeter around what we can call design. So at um, uh, one point, IDEO introduced the concept of human-centered design and began to guarantee that everything that went out the door would not just look good and work well, but it would have gone through a rigorous human factors analysis by very highly trained uh, human factors professionals. Uh, and this really opens the door to um, a, a much wider uh, range of ideas that feed into the design process. Because the human experience, I mean, where does that start and where does that end? It's much, much more complicated than, I would say, simply solving a mechanical problem in an elegant way or a visual problem in an attractive way. That's when you begin to get into behavioral issues, into organizational issues, into cultural issues in the dual sense of the surrounding culture that we all live in, but also the culture of the company that you worked with at the time. And what are the things that get in, in the way of um, uh, making a well-functioning, attractive product also a successful product? And those are often um, cultural, organizational problems and not mechanical or electronic problems. And that's where the transformation practice came in. We didn't when we were working with IDEO, but do a lot of companies come to IDEO or do you work with a lot of companies that are really there to do organizational design work as opposed to um, service or product or experience? Maybe experience is the wrong term. Yeah. Design work. And um, yeah, is that a... Is that a thing? And how often does that happen? Yeah, that, that is an, an increasingly important part of the practice at IDEO and uh, many of our competitors with whom we are good friends. Um, uh, it um, uh, can in some respects be traced to um, a recurrent experience that many of our clients had, which is that 
we'd present them with something and then something internal to the culture would kill an otherwise good idea um, or um, cause it to go through so many um, reductions uh, uh, that the, uh, uh, by the end of it, it was not an exciting product any longer. So, I mean, you've probably heard many of the uh, kind of standard cliches about how organizations can develop antibodies to kill off exciting new ideas. Uh, and why? Because of um, threats to people's um, positions, because of uncertainties as to where this will lead, uh, a fear of risk, um, which I think is um, a very dangerous thing for individuals as well as organizations. Uh, so we began to look not just at the product that we were being asked to do or the solution we were asked to find, but also at um, finding a hospitable home within the client organization for that product. So there are groups at IDEO today that are working on poverty as a design problem, working on pediatric obesity as a design problem, urban violence as a design problem. Brilliant. Uh, death as a design problem. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I, is the way design thinking um, has evolved, does that continue to evolve? Is that a, are you redesigning design thinking? Yes. Yeah. This is what I'm saying on, yeah. on the fly. Uh, interesting that you should ask. Uh, Tim Brown, the uh, outgoing CEO of IDEO, uh, uh, and I worked on a book together called Change by Design. We did that 10 years ago, and the publishers came back to us uh, some months ago and asked us if we would be interested in a 10th anniversary edition. It was a rather a successful book. So we sat down and asked ourselves, has anything happened in the last 10 years that could justify a new edition? Uh -huh. And I said, no, not really. Just, you know, the smartphone, autonomous vehicles, <laughs> CRISPR gene editing, cloud computing, the maturing of artificial intelligence, the consumerization of robotics. Where does it end? It's probably been the most disruptive decade in human history. So we tackled that in a new edition. And in a final chapter, um, we address the need to redesign design, which is, I think, exactly your question. Uh, in order to grapple with the uncertainties, with the technological insurgencies, with the political instabilities, uh, with the gl increasing global interconnectedness of, of our world. And one of, the, uh, one of the key themes there is we, um, we face the challenge of continuously rethinking what design can and cannot do as that, that um, perimeter gets wider and wider. I like to quote um, uh, a famous um, line from the great Finnish architect Eliel Saarinen. Many people know his son's work, Eero, the St. Louis Arch and the TWA terminal in Washington, Dulles Airport. But this is the father. And he said, always design a thing by considering it in its next largest context. So if you're working on a chair, think about the room that the chair is going to be in. If you're thinking about the room, think about the house. If your problem is a house, think about the street. If it's a street, think about the city plan. And I'm inspired by that because now we are thinking about the global ecology as the context within which even the smallest thing we design um, operates and the, uh, the impacts are reciprocal. One of the things when we work together that always struck me is 
Um, and, and the way we started at the time, it was Kraft and Safeway. One of the things that struck me was we were two companies that had a lot of, um, a bit of an adversarial relationship. And I think um, we used the design process and IDEO's way of doing design thinking to recreate the way we work together. But it also had a, a, a unexpected impact of having us mm -hmm. um, work together better as a team going forward. So this notion of solving a common problem together ended up um, having a result that we weren't expecting. And frankly, was one of the reasons we continued to do it on and on was we kind of took it to problematic relationships yeah. and used it as a way for us to come together over a challenge. So yeah. I don't know if you've seen that same um, um, dynamic play out elsewhere or not. Uh, yeah, I have, and it has uh, been a topic that has uh, intrigued and concerned me very much. I recently completed a project with a group in the Stanford Medical School. What we did was to create, uh, so I'm kind of a very theoretical guy, and this was a big switch for me. We created a very hands-on, step-by-step practical guide to using design thinking to uh, effect changes in medical environments. Okay. High stakes operations, hospitals, clinics, emergency rooms, um, medical schools. And one of the uh, key pieces of it has to do with how you build a team. This goes to your question about mm -hmm. Safeway and Craft, yeah. I think, and getting disparate members of uh, an organization, or in your case, two organizations, to get on the same page and move forward in sync. So um, if we wait for uh, the leadership of, let's say, a hospital to say, here is a problem, um, go solve it. This is very top-down. Um, if we have leadership support for a kind of grassroots initiative, which identifies key stakeholders, mm -hmm. So in um, one of the cases of, uh, of a, a project for an improvement project, uh, the stakeholders included a surgeon, a nurse, a uh, patient advocate, an ambulance driver, a pharmacist, and a janitor. Um, take any one of these people out of the equation and you've got um, a partial solution which could break down. And you think, well, the janitor, anybody can clean up. No, I mean, this is absolutely critical to maintaining a hygienic environment in a hospital. Every bit as much as the ambulance driver who's got to be in sync and coordinate. So we are advocating building an improvement team, call it a design thinking team if you're wedded to that term, I'm not, uh, but to build an improvement team um, that will represent the key stakeholders for the particular problem you're trying to solve. And uh, I guarantee that the janitor and the pharmacist will have a different point of view and different information and different insights than the patient advocate and the surgeon. Well, it, it, that's really interesting. because, and, and what I was thinking as you were saying, saying that, I'm thinking about supply chains where if you look at the steps from the time you grow something to Perfect, the time you yeah. process it to the time you... Uh, store it to the time you sell it to the time somebody eats it. Um, at all levels of that, there's very little connection with the guy that's packing the box to the guy that's eating the product, the yep. woman that's eating the product. So we've we've thought a lot about how do you bring those part th those pieces together in a way mm -hmm. and 
kind of design it for success, if you will. Yeah, so it's, well, I, it's really I tricky. Certainly, don't have the answer to that beyond saying that it's um, imperative that you do so and that you create an effective means or modality for doing exactly that. We did another project. Uh, it's actually still underway at IDEO. Um, uh, and it was for the uh, Los Angeles County Voting uh, District. So Los Angeles is the largest and one of probably the most diverse voting district in the United States. And they're using a voting machine that had been developed in the 1960s. And as everybody knows, the American electoral process is in a state of, to be charitable, extreme uncertainty nowadays. So um, they initially asked us to redesign the voting machine. And we preferred, again, like Saren, and take it in the next largest context. No, we won't do that, but we will redesign democracy for you. How's that? <laughs> uh, and the process included thinking not just of the person who goes to uh, a neighborhood polling station on election day to vote, but also the guys who drive the trucks that deliver the machine oh, to those yeah. 4,200 polling yeah. stations or whatever it is, and the retired school teachers who assemble the machines, the volunteers working in the polling stations, and the attendant to the blind person who and everybody's. Wow. Wow. So the, uh, the greatest diversity of um, affected parties, wow. column stakeholders, is um, it's no guarantee of success, but leaving them out is a guarantee of failure. Um, in terms of industry today, are there any companies, I won't ask you to call out who's doing it particularly poorly, but are there any companies you think, wow, well, they really are knocking out of the park beyond an apple? Um, Apple is going to be renegotiating okay. its, um, uh, its future. Uh, so since you mentioned that, um, you know, I guess I would have to say that when Steve Jobs walked onto the stage at um, uh, the big Apple event and said, we're going to make a phone, it, the, the shockwave went through the industry whatever the industry is, the electronics industry, the phone industry. Well, wait a minute, we thought you guys were a computer company. Um, and then uh, some years later, Apple is exploring building a car and another shockwave. I mean, that project has not gone forward, apparently. Um, we have not heard such a thrilling announcement okay. from Apple in some time. So, you know, the earbuds are pretty cool and, and, and so on. But we haven't heard anything that says we are going to reinvent a category in the way that, um, that we have before. Uh, elsewhere, um, uh, there is stuff coming out of labs that's really exciting. Um, I uh, have been uh, an advisor to an emerging design program at the Technion in Haifa in Israel. And there's a group there that is working on uh, an electric aircraft, an electric jet. Oh, wow. Yeah, so think about the difference in the noise level between an electric leaf blower and a gas-powered leaf blower, an electric car and a gas-powered wow. car, the efficiency, the environmental impact, uh, and air travel, as we know, is one of the most egregious sources of noise pollution, space pollution, um, and uh, fuel consumption, carbon emissions, and all of the rest. So the thought that we might have an electric That's very cool. air transport. That would be amazing. Um, and then the, the question for designers is, uh, okay, 
let us say we have the technology or it is close to maturing, then how do we translate that technology into um, a compelling human experience? And that's where design comes in. So last question, um, uh, Barry Gates. So what's next for you? Now the book coming out, what, what do you, uh, uh, what, what, what challenges do you see that you'd like to tackle next? Okay, well, I can answer that. So I have done seven books. I am at work on number eight. Okay, good. It's called The Architecture of Information. It's a study of uh, six emerging corporate campuses, physical buildings in Silicon Valley. So it's been really striking to me that Silicon Valley has been a global center for innovation in almost every field except one, and that is architecture, which has been a disaster. It's a wasteland. Um, fly into San Jose International Airport. As you look down from the plane, it looks like a gigantic computer chip. <laughs> and so Apple, Facebook, Samsung, Microsoft, um, I'm leaving something out. Um, are all NVIDIA, excuse me, are all have all either recently completed, have under construction, or have planned extraordinary new buildings designed around the information uh, technology oh, very industries. Cool. Very cool. So I am looking at that. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. As always, it was an amazing discussion. I really appreciate you meeting always, you. spending always, time with me. Always a pleasure, Ron. All right, thanks, Barry. Good luck to you. Thank you. This has been another Supply Change episode. Join us next time for more insights on the supply chain of everything.